Hello and welcome to What's the Big Deal About Greenville. In today's episode, I sit down with Don Oglesby. Don is the CEO of Homes of Hope. His company has been building affordable housing and changing lives through men's outreach. It's wonderful to see how organizations in Greenville are helping those in need, and I hope that you get inspired by our conversation. If you'd like to know more about Homes of Hope, you can visit them at homesofhope.org. Enjoy the show. Thank you for coming, Don. And uh, I wanted to kind of get into what is Homes of Hope, and um, and if you can give me a brief history of the organization, and then we'll get into your role. Sure, glad to uh, be on the show. I appreciate you asking me. Um, Homes of Hope. We we're 22 years old. We started in 1998. Um, we have primary two part mission with a third part that kind of glues the two together. The two part mission is affordable housing. And that's what we're probably known the most for with our name, Homes of Hope. It kind of goes without saying most of the time. Uh, but we're also known, uh, for those who know us well, uh, for workforce development program for men overcoming addictions. So the two things go on simultaneously. And uh, the thing that ties them together is economic mobility. We're, we're looking for opportunities to serve families that need affordable housing. But uh, that's not the ending place for them. It's the starting place for them to, to achieve economic mobility uh, so that they don't need affordable housing in their future and somebody else can occupy that home. And then the same for the men, uh, the formerly homeless or addicted guy uh, needs a work skill. You know, he, he uh, getting clean and sober is, is uh, hard enough, but it, that by itself doesn't equip you to uh, command a, a decent wage with an mm. employer. Many times it it equips you to command a low wage because they're taking a chance on you. Our men in our program graduate with above living wage jobs to go into, and they are on a, what I call a career path instead of a job path. So those two things are going on simultaneously. The men's training is all around housing construction. So the two tie together very well. Uh, so they don't build every house we build, but they do build some of our houses and they learn at on-the-job training for a year while they're with us. And then the houses end up being uh, for families, literally uh, families that work low-wage jobs that can't afford what's in the market. So what's the inception of the organization? Like, how did, was, it a, was it your brainchild, or was it, um, or did, you ha- did you have a, just a, a, need, a need to seek that ministry, or was, there, was this a larger effort? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I, I I don't take credit for the beginning idea, but I was standing next to the guy who had it. So, you know, uh, I call him the birth daddy and I'm the adoptive daddy. He had the idea, but uh, he didn't really, you know, have the wherewithal for whatever reason to pursue, you know, actually running an organization called Homes of Hope, but he had money that he could help fund it. And he had the idea and I was working for him at the time. And, uh, Felt a call to the ministry while I was working for him and uh, felt like uh, I needed to go do something else besides work for him at some point. And he recognized that. And he said, why don't you take this and you know, take this baby and raise it up? Hmm. So um, I certainly take credit for being somewhat of the father, but I'm not the father. You know? hmm. And uh, ever since then, um, it's evolved. Uh, it's, you know, way, way beyond anything uh I ever dreamed of, uh, but that's, that's how it started was, uh, really fulfilling what I felt like was a life call for me. 
What what was your business before? Um, uh, he owned a manufactured housing dealership, and I was okay. his comp for So I was good with. I'm always been good with numbers. They uh, joke around. It's the only skill I actually have that I can add. <laughs> and I was his comptroller, and uh, he was investing uh, his money into different uh, nonprofits and ministries in the area. Mm-hmm. When he had the idea for Homes of Hope, he said, "Let's let's put it all into that." And I had a business background. I was a small business owner before that. And I had dabbled in real estate investment all my life. So I understood real estate. I understood business and I understood finance and all that coupled together with ministry that I had been trained in. And when I went to Bible college and all of that kind of tied together into this is a perfect fit for me. To me, it's what I was born to do was, was, uh, was be at homes of hope and, and fulfill that calling. Do um do you have any like a, a checklist that you go through when you decide to build? Do you um how do you choose a a spot in the city? Um and that kind of goes hand in hand with another question I had, which was like, what's your relationship with the city? Because um, I know that would have to exist. Um, they're trying to hit a certain you know uh, mixture of different types of homes. So, um, can you explain some of that or what your relationships are? Yeah, we've been partnering with the city ever since 2003, um, and and they've been great partners for us. You know, they get federal allocations that they have to invest in this kind of community development work. And so uh, they were happy to see us come along and be a, uh, a place where that money could land. And, of course, we needed those funds to make housing affordable. One of the things people don't – most people don't and uh, understand that affordable housing isn't really about cheap labor or cheap materials. It's about cheap money. And so it, it costs us the same for the land, the labor, and the houses, the materials. Uh, what we have to find is money that doesn't cost us a lot, whether it's grants or donations or patient capital that's lent, lo- uh, loaned to us or deferred lending. Uh, all those things enable us to not pass the cost of the house the full cost of the house onto the end user, which makes it affordable. So the city uh, being a good partner invests their federal dollars over the years that they had that was designated for community development into some of our houses. Uh, we've built 640 houses uh, of those about, I think it's 320 or something like that are in Greenville County. Uh, so most of them, have been in Greenville County, and a lot of those have been in the city instead of the county until recently when the city land is really becoming unaffordable for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're having to branch out. We've got a project in Traveler's Rest, one in Berea, one in Malden, uh, one in Spartanburg. We've got some projects. Uh, we're looking in Greer, mm-hmm. projects that are on the outskirts of the city limits. Uh, it's getting harder and harder to find affordable land in the city. So I guess I'm, I'm, that's a big, long answer to your question. No, I mean, that's what I like. It's um, yeah, I, I really do want to get into the nuts and bolts of like how you how you choose a piece of property. Um, what's the design of the development? Um, I, I, I was looking through your website preparing for this. And, you know, there's just some, there's so many people that you've helped. And but how do you how do you design the development? Is that is that are there certain things that you take into account or like just, is it the land? Just, uh, can you share anything? Sure. Yeah. Well, these days, uh, we have to go larger scale projects to make numbers work. And, and with the prices that we have to pay for housing and land now, 
the good news is interest rates are lower, so that does help. But, but you know, land and, and materials and labor is, is continues to increase. So we've had to find ways to build housing of scale. Like a small project for us now is 30 homes at a time. We've got one project in Charleston at 75 homes. Somewhere in between those two is a good sweet spot to, you know, evenly distribute the soft cost and the land costs that are fixed uh, into a, a more affordable per unit cost so that we can then have affordable pricing. So I used to say the land come, it came looking for us instead of us going looking for the land when somebody would say, hey, we love what you do. Here's a, a site maybe, you know, you could purchase. Uh, about three years ago, we put a, um, a company on a retainer for that purpose, the Randolph Group. Uh, Jeff Randolph owns the Randolph Group, and he's been a developer in the area for over 30 years and probably one of the finest developers I've ever seen and got a great eye for development. We put him on a retainer about three years ago to find those larger tracks and then work with his resources, engineers and, and architects, to design the plans uh, to make a good, healthy community, you know, incorporating the same thing that a for-profit developer would. We want good green space. We want good uh, living space, uh, you know, for in the houses themselves. We want amenities nearby for, for lower wage people. Sometimes transportation is an issue, not as much as people think. Uh, a, a lot of the folks we serve are working and have transportation. They just they, you know, they need the affordability of their, of their largest expense, which is housing. So we're looking at the same things that any other developer would look at. One thing that I learned years and years ago when we were trying to understand, you know, how to relate to families of low income, one of the first things that we learned was it's the same, Don. It's exactly the same. They want the same things that you do. They want to be safe at home. They want to know their neighbors and like them. They want to be convenient to things that they go shop or school. They want the same thing. They're not different. They just don't make as much money as you do. So uh, with that in mind, we try to make sure one of our founding principles is market quality. So we insist that none of our affordable homes are distinguishable from the market. We want them to be indistinguishable. The worst thing that we could see is a family or somebody drive by one of our family's homes and say, that must be an affordable house or that must be a low income family mm. there yeah. by looking at it. So affordable housing should not be something you can see. Affordable housing should be a math equation. It means I can afford my housing. 30% of your income is the general standard. And so if it's market quality and we build it in mixed income settings, so you might be a person who earns $20,000 a year living in our community. Next door might be somebody that earns $40,000 a year. And next door on the other side, 60. And maybe you've got a neighbor that earns 100. And all of them together living in the same, not the same design like cookie cutter same, but, but the same quality of house mm -hmm. and basically the same size with the same amenities occupying and sharing the same green space, then when you drive through that neighborhood, nobody thinks anything about what your income is. You assume that everybody paid the same price for their house and everybody's making about the same income because the houses are the same in terms of market quality. That's so critically important to us. Mm -hmm. It's hard enough to be low income. Why stigmatize somebody by putting them in a house that everybody can point at 
and say there's a low income. Low income. Yeah. yeah, it's just it's they're they're already hamstrung of being low income. Let's let's not put that on them. So and it makes a better community. We have what we call um, intentional neighbors. These are neighbors that we've generally found in churches and things that, that say, OK, I want to live next door to people who don't look like me. I want my kids to play next door with kids who don't look like them. And I could buy a house anywhere, but I choose to live in a Homes of Hope neighborhood because I know we'll live behind people of diversity that have different life experiences, and then I can learn from them. They don't come in with the idea that I'm going to teach them something. Mm-hmm. Just because you make more money doesn't mean necessarily you're smarter, right? It, right. ma- it means you make more money. So mm-hmm. but every now and then, you do realize that you've got connection maybe they don't have. And so you start being a good neighbor to that mm-hmm. next-door neighbor and sharing resources. And then at the, and the flip side of that is you learn from them. Low-income people are some of the most resourceful people I've ever met. I read a book recently that says low-income people have to do mental gymnastics to survive. And some of them do triple backflips every day. (laughs) That's the truth. That is a true statement. And and so they learn from each other and the communities become healthier that way. Uh, Then you're not stigmatized and congregated in an area. You know, uh, a a thought that, uh, uh, I don't know, two two decades ago that I first heard that we still have segregated housing. And I went, how is that? We were segregated by income. Hmm. And, and that's a true statement. It still is today. We're trying to break that cycle where mixed income communities are developed, where we can develop all of the housing and help the families that we're really dedicated to serve in the midst of it. Um, I'm going to link to uh, your, your organization's website in the show notes, um, and you're going to see some of the stories uh, of people who have been helped. Do you have any in particular that stand out for you or maybe – altered the trajectory of your thinking um, when you just met people and maybe early on you met people and helped them and, and you, and you, do you have any stories to share there? Uh, I do. I mean, I, I'm sure you, know, you have a, I'm sure you have many. Yeah. I <laughs> but, um, you know, it's how much time do you have? But, right. Yeah. Uh, I, I can generalize it. You know, I, I've, I've seen uh one of the key things that, that I learned is something I just shared with you already was that, that the desires and hopes and dreams of people are the same as, as in mine and yours. And, and there is no difference. And people do want to be good neighbors. I, I, I think, um, you know, I think of families that make it from uh, when we first met them, they were literally homeless that they, that, you know, the, maybe the husband left and left the wife and kids uh, and she's got, you know, very uh, limited skills. And so all of a sudden she becomes uh, such a low income person that she can't even afford the rent that they were paying before she becomes homeless. And and, uh, to see a family like that come all the way up to not only coming to us and finding some stability and being able to afford her housing, but then start working on a budget and start saving money and start using a bank instead of driving around town with a money order, paying all your bills and finding out that there are resources out there that you didn't know about or that you were scared to access because you didn't know anybody. And all of a sudden, this person then says, I've saved up enough money to go back to school and I'm going to get a better job after I graduate. And and then a couple of years later, she becomes a homeowner. And now she's starting to grow wealth, which is still in America. That's still the number one way to grow wealth is home ownership. And then she doesn't need affordable housing anymore. Those stories are multiplied over the years 
uh, exponentially. It's just, it's just amazing to see. And then uh, the flip side of that would be maybe a senior citizen who's on a fixed income and never has any real dreams for owning their house. They've rented all their life and they, and they're fixed. They're, they're not going to be a homeowner, but, but how cool is it when they have a landlord like us who cares about them as a person being a Christ centered organization, we're going to build a relationship with that person or, or that family. And, and then we find out how can we connect them to things that would help them. I've seen stories where people really reunited their whole family because of stable housing. I've seen stories where the kids started doing better in school because of affordable housing. How does that work? It's just the old, you know, the, 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 I don't know about you, you're not nearly as old as I am, but I remember when I was in school and, and kids got made fun of because they smelled like kerosene mm. and they got stigmatized and they, and they, and they, sometimes they would fall asleep in class and you think, boy, that's just, what's wrong with that? Yeah. And you find out later that they had to stay up all night because the neighbors were fighting or the drug dealer around the corner or, or shooting at the police or who knows what it might be. Mm-hmm. all kinds of reasons people don't do well. And then you put them in a stable situation with good neighbors, good neighborhood, caring people around them. And next thing you know, that kid starts doing his homework and he gets to sleep on time and he starts doing better in school. They talk about health improving. Uh, we've heard stories of kids health that actually improved after they were housed just because the stress was mm-hmm. not. Yeah. Good. The stress got to them. You think about Rather. stress. A little kid. Well, how bad could that be? It's really bad sometimes. So, uh, I love stories like that. And I have to, since you ask, I'll tell you one more stories of the guys in our program that overcome addictions. uh, Mm. That literally, when we when they come into our program, they were seven months prior to our program, they were on the street and addicted, and homeless. And then when they graduate our program, they've they've been clean and sober for a year and a half, and they have this marketable skill that employers literally are falling all over themselves to hire our men because they come out of our program fully equipped in construction skills and they've got a good work ethic and a good work attitude. We've had multiple employers say, Don, your guys shine on the job right off the bat. They make mine look bad. I told them a couple of times, I've joked with them, I said, y'all are going to get beat up on the job if you look that good. <laughs> you know, Tile it back you know, a little bit. <laughs> yeah, pump the brakes on that a little bit. but. <laughs> But it's so good to hear when they say these guys come out of your program and they've got a great attitude. And all those employers not only employ our guys at good wages. The last graduate got uh, hired at $22 an hour. This guy literally was homeless 18 months ago. And and they say, we want to sponsor your program too. So I promise I'll finish this answer uh, with this. Keep going. This is amazing. With with John, uh, I won't say his last name out of privacy, but John came to us. And he was real skeptical and he graduated the recovery program that is sort of the entry level for us. And he was kind of skeptical about it all, but he said, I'm going to, I'm going to give it a try. I'm going to see what I can do. John had 21 felonies on his record, 21. Steve, who runs our men's program said, John, you were pretty crappy criminal. You, you got caught a lot. <laughs> you try might a different job. Yeah. Try something else. 21 felonies. Uh, after he graduated our program, uh, one of his instructors at Greenville Tech, which we partner with Greenville Tech for a lot of the training, he took a liking to John and he took him under his wing and he taught him in his business. He said, I don't have a son to pass my business on to. So I'm thinking about maybe raising you up to inherit my business. Today, John inherited that business and now he's merged with another company 
and has had the governor expunge his entire record. He has no felonies on his record. Brother. He's a business owner employing other people. And, and his biggest problem now is he's got more work than he can handle. <laughs> How cool wow. is that? That you know, is fantastic. I can't even, <laughs> wow. I didn't expect to hear that kind of a story. <laughs> um, but, uh, Okay, so Homes of Hope is centered mostly in South Carolina. Um, is are, do you have hopes to expand beyond South Carolina, or um, are you, yeah. you just want to focus here? I've always just wanted to focus here, but and so your question was, do we have hopes to? The answer would be no, uh, but are we going to? The answer would probably be yes, because we didn't really go looking to expand even to Charleston and Columbia. Mm-hmm. But Charleston and Columbia came calling to us because they don't have nonprofits in the area with the capacity that we've got to uh, build at scale. Um, so we answered the call and we are in Charleston and Columbia and we're also in Rock Hill. So if you're in Rock Hill, Columbia and Charleston, you figure, okay, Asheville's actually closer than mm-hmm. Columbia or, or Charleston and, and maybe, so we're actually looking in, at Morganton, North Carolina as a possible place to develop because they came looking for us. They came mm-hmm. and asked, Hey, can we talk to y'all? We need what you do. So that's kind of how we're going to answer that is we're not really purposely looking to expand beyond the borders of South Carolina because the need is huge. But if, a, if an area is within an hour drive um, and, and just across the border, why wouldn't we look at it? So that's, that's, that's a possibility for our future. Um, what, uh, what events does, uh, if any, does Homes of Hope uh, sponsor? I know there have been some auctions that were used as maybe uh, to raise capital. Um, mm-hmm. And I've actually participated in one of those um, a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I know there's those, but are there any others that you, uh, that uh, Home Soap sponsors? Yeah, we have a golf tournament every year. We just had ours a couple of weeks ago, our annual golf tournaments at the Cliffs. Um, and that's always a big event. And then uh, the, the auction that you're referring to is kind of uh, morphed into, now we use the word gala. So it sounds really oh. And maybe it was a gala when I did it. <laughs> okay. Well, we have a gala every year and uh, it's at the Hyatt. And, uh, you know, we're, we're, some of our mm-hmm. folks get their testimony and, and we give opportunity for you to auction uh, a bid on some really cool auction items mm-hmm. that help raise money for us. Yes. Um, I want to kind of get a little more personal in your um, in your experience with uh, Homes of Hope. What have you learned? Um, I kind of want to use the podcast as a way when I when I talk to people who are in in larger organizations, especially with outreach. Um, I would like to I'd like to talk to them about what they learned so that it can be a help to others who are listening. And so, what what have you learned from this, or something that you could tell your your younger self? Maybe you ought to do this or maybe you ought to do that. Yeah. That's a really important question and, and one that hardly anybody has ever asked me in, in the, over the years. So I appreciate the question because I'm, I'm always thinking about that. And, and, you know, there is a multiple answer. I'm sure I'll try not to go quite as long winded on this one as no. I did on the other one. It'll ones. be a help. It'll but be a some help. I've already shared, you know, I think uh, learning mm-hmm. about people and, and, I've learned that uh, homelessness is different than affordable housing. Uh, That's two different problems to solve in two different ways. I've learned that supportive housing is a real key to changing the, uh, let's say, solving the problem. In other words, um, 
you know, you can build units. Uh, the Housing and Urban, urban Development, HUD, uh, has built thousands and thousands of units of housing. And do you think mm-hmm. we could say they've solved the problem? Well, no, nobody would ever say that HUD solved the problem. Units is not uh, the, the solution. It is a solution. Uh, you can build more units, but it's not the solution. Economic mobility for families to be able to get out of the need uh, is the solution. And it's family by family and, and support is needed. So uh, one of the things I say a lot, I say about a hundred different things about the same time every day. So <laughs> one of them is, uh, you know, that, that support is, is a missing link um, that, that we, we don't understand uh, in, unless you get involved in it, the critical nature of um, just making sure that you're looking at a family or an individual rather than a unit count. And I, I think uh, supportive housing is, is a, is a crucial um, effort, I guess, uh, to not playing musical chairs with the same people. And that's what I think we've done over the years is play musical chairs with them. We're moving them around in different units of housing and, and, and they become a unit. And uh, as long as they're a unit, that's, that's as far as they'll go. But once they become a person you get to know, then support is then brought in. And if I can give you support in the things that you need beyond housing, in other words, housing is a starting place, not an ending place. You've seen the TV shows uh, over the years where a celebrity says, let's, fix up this house and let's donate all the furniture and the appliances. And this will be awesome and great. And the end of the show, they hand them the key and that show's over to me. No, that's when the show starts Mm -hmm. It's when you have stability of housing and then let's build on that. And, and most nonprofits or most government entities that are involved in affordable housing, check the box when they build a house and they've done their job. And it's, it's just playing musical chairs with the same people. And that's the number one thing I think I've learned over the years is uh, generational change is what we're after, mm-hmm. not housing counts, not mm-hmm. checking boxes. Generational change means that I have done something for you that you now are changed to the point of no return. You're not going to go back to whatever it was that held you back before. You've now got a foothold and you've got some resources. And now you're going to teach your children that same thing. And they're going to teach their children and their, your grandchildren will be changed and so forth. And you won't ever need Homes of Hope again. That's real change that we want to see and be a part of. And that's the coolest part of what we do. Well, Don, your your interview is unique because I like to kind of conclude with the name of my podcast, which is What's the Big Deal About Greenville? But, you know, you're part of What's the Big Deal About Greenville? <laughs> so, um, but uh, looking at our community um, and what it has to offer and how it's changed, you've been here many years, how it's changed over the years. I'm a, I'm a lifer, so mm-hmm. I, know, I know what it was and what it is. And, um, but Don Oglesby, what's the big deal about Greenville? Well, um, I actually answered a question one time this way when they said, Don, if you could live anywhere in the world, anywhere, where would you live? And I actually answered Greenville. And people might laugh like you are, but like, really, Don? Are you kidding me? <laughs> it's got everything you'd ever want. You know, we're close to the mountains. We're close to the beach. It's, the weather's great. The people are wonderful. Downtown, awesome. You know, uh, I love Charleston, but I, I'd rather live here and visit Charleston. Mm-hmm. I, it's a great 
city. Now we've still got, uh, you know, we we're changing so rapidly and the people mm-hmm. that we, that we sometimes lose sight of the bus boy and the restaurant that we like, or the bartender or, um, the hair cutter or the grass cutter, mm-hmm. uh, if they can't live close to their jobs, we're in danger of becoming San Francisco where nobody can live anywhere uh, there that works in the city uh, at all. Uh, if you do, you, you're going to be spending 60 or 70% of your income for it. That's not healthy. So I don't want us to become that. And I think the city's doing a good job of, of addressing the problem and trying its best to solve the problem. Um, I just, you know, go back to the people part instead of the, the unit count part. That's that's the missing link to me. But that's why we're in business, uh, that we can help with that. And, and lots of other entities and agencies can help with that. I think Greenville is still the place that I would pick. If you ask me the question today, if you could live anywhere, where would you live? I think I'd still pick Greenville. It's a pretty cool place. Fantastic. Well, thanks a lot, Don. I really appreciate you sitting down with me. This was great. Thank you. Hey everybody, this is Bill Kammer, and over the last few months I've had a lot of fun producing this show. I'm an educator and realtor here in Greenville, and you've probably guessed that I love my town and I want others to know what's great about it. If you'd like to call Greenville home, please contact me. My email address is in the show notes. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave us a review. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Artwork is by Corey Godby. Music is licensed by Storyblocks Audio. If you'd like to be a guest on our show, please email me at thebigdealgreenville at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, y'all.